Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis chapter 4. I don't do this very often, but I want to ask you to turn there with me. A note about why I don't. I think it's very important that the public hearing, the hearing of the public reading of Scripture be emphasized. We have lost something because we have Bibles with us. For most of the history of the church, until the printing press, the way you heard God's Word was by it being publicly read in Scripture. And there is a goodness to having eyes uplifted, hearing the Word read. It's experienced differently that way. So those of you who don't turn to your Bibles, I think that's totally fine. But I need you to do so now, because I want to show you a few things in chapter 5, which we will not be reading. And it'll be much easier if you can see them. So first, you're going to read chapter 4. This is our scripture reading. And then after that, a few notes about chapter 5. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehuahel, and Mehuahel fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jebal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. 
You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife, and she bore a, knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so before we turn to Hebrews 12, a couple things to notice in uh, Genesis 5. You notice as our text, we're taking 4 and 5, even though we only read chapter 4. So if you simply look at the text, the paragraphing is very helpful. This is the generations from Adam to Noah and his sons. And notice in the paragraphs for each generation or each uh, section of the genealogy, there is a refrain. We are told, uh, for example, verse 11, Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. This refrain over and over, verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. The refrain is one of the things I want you to notice. And then notice the end of the chapter. There's another Lamech. This time it's a good, a faithful Lamech. And we read this in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our works and from the painful toils of our hands. And if you see the footnote there, the word relief is the word for rest. And the name Noah uh, is very much like that word for rest. All right, our New Testament reading, please, or I'm going to read from Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. And now you don't know, should we turn there or not? Both ways are fine. I just want to say it's not more pious to turn there. You're welcome not to. For many of us, it helps to pay attention if you can see it in front of you, and that's a very good thing. So, Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we are gathered together around your word, as we have heard the public reading of Scripture and we anticipate its proclamation in your midst, we pause to acknowledge with humility that nothing we do now ultimately depends upon our own efforts or ability. Instead, we look to you and we seek the presence of your Holy Spirit so that this time in your word might be faithful and fruitful among us as a result of your work among us. We ask you to enable us by your Spirit to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Enable us by your Spirit to look to our Lord Jesus Christ and to receive all that you have promised us in him by faith. 
We pray that you would do this for us through this, the preaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have before us this morning what is in many ways a very difficult text. I personally had a fair bit of difficulty working with it, preparing for our time together this morning. Now there are many reasons for that. It is a very dark text. The event that happens, Cain killing his brother, if you meditate upon it for any length of time, is deeply disturbing. The other reason it's a difficult passage is that it often doesn't feel all that dark to us because it is so familiar, because it has so often been pulled out as a Bible story, its own sort of story, separated from the rest of Scripture to teach us a moral lesson. And that also distorts, affects how we hear this text. And all of those things are very hard to overcome. It's very hard to to sort of cut through those habits we have so that we can hear the text in a fresh way. It's also a difficult text because if you get past those things, you get, in a sense, get past the darkness of it, or most importantly, you get past the familiarity of it, there is so much going on here. And so it is a challenge to ask, how, how do we even approach a passage like this? You have a text like this, you say, I want to read this faithfully. I want to read it faithfully as part of the broader story of Scripture, as that which points to Christ. How do we do this? So, because it was difficult for me in particular, it was helpful for me, and I think it will be helpful for you, to outline this sermon the way really we could outline any sermon on a passage of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so by this outline, I want to be giving us an example of how any of us on our own ought to read the scriptures. That we're going to read this story first as a covenant word from God, part of the whole story of the Bible. We're going to ask, how does it fit in the bigger story? The key there is as a covenant word. So as God addressing you as his covenant people, those he is, who has united himself to in Christ. So first, we're going to hear it as a covenant word. Second, because it is a covenant word, it's going to be warning us. And also, thirdly, it's going to be giving us promises. These three things, a covenant word from God, part of the one story of the Bible, that secondly warns us, and thirdly gives us promises. Now, as I said, that outline could work for any story in the Old Testament, but for difficult ones, it could be helpful just to make that explicit. So that's what I'm doing with you this morning. Again, where that's following from is I enjoyed the challenges of this text, and I found that outline very helpful. So first, the story of Cain and Abel as a covenant word, part of the big picture of the story of the Bible This story is not simply, again, as many of us perhaps grew up with it, a Bible story among other Bible stories alongside each other as these isolated pieces. It is rather part of a single story, the one story of the Bible. It is part of the book of Genesis. It's part of the Pentateuch, the first five books. That's really important to remember because this it is then the covenant word being given to Israel after they left Egypt. And so everything being said here is to unfold that relationship of God with his people. But let's, let's zoom back in more closely though. It's part of the book of Genesis. 
I want to set before you that the way to read this passage is the way to read every other passage, but for this passage in particular, in the light of Genesis 3, verse 15. The curse that God just proclaimed in the previous chapter upon the serpent says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I'm going to give you a quick summary of how we understood that passage. I apologize if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, but the, where we focused on it in detail. But the basic point is this. God tells Satan that one day a child will be born, the offspring of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head, who will defeat Satan. Satan knows that the promise is that a child is going to be born who will be the one who will defeat him. Adam and Eve heard the Lord give that curse to the serpent. So Adam and Eve now know, here is the key. Here's what's going to happen. One day, we're going to have a child who's going to fix everything that's messed up. One day, we're going to have a child who is going to defeat evil, who's going to crush the serpent, who's going to undo the curse, who's going to solve this problem that the world is suffering under. Now, read verse 1 of our chapter. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now all sorts of analysis goes into what these phrases mean because they're a little bit strange, the way Eve says this. But here's what I think all the interpretations should agree on. Eve wonders. Perhaps Eve thinks for sure. Eve wonders, is this the one? A child has been born. Is this the one who's going to defeat the serpent? Is he the one who's going to defeat evil? Is he the one who will crush the serpent's head? And this language of, I have gotten a man, is the sense of an event. Something is happening, and then she emphasizes, with the help of the Lord. Now, however much we understand, and we don't know for sure just how precise her thinking is here, This is an expression of faith. She's wondering, maybe this is the one. Well, what happens in the story, though? This one, who she thought maybe would be the one who would defeat evil, instead does what? Gives himself over to evil. This one instead follows the way of the serpent. And now we discover how the drama is going to unfold. The offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent, they're all people. And it's a matter of who do they align with. And so this one, you can imagine the heartbreak, you can imagine the devastation where this one who they thought would be the one who would defeat evil instead chooses to follow evil. But then, in the drama of the story, another thing happens. The story continues. And again, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. There is another. There is another who was born. Oh, wait a minute, it's not hopeless. There is another, and this one as the story goes on, he proves faithful. This one shows himself to be the offspring of the woman. And now we have two lines represented. The one following the ways of the serpent and the one who is the offspring of the woman. We wonder if at this point, though, Eve is despairing slightly. 
Because Abel is like the word hevel in Hebrew, which many of you will remember from Ecclesiastes is the word for vapor. This is what she names her second son. Maybe she just liked the sound of it. We don't know. It doesn't say, right? Maybe. But it has echoes of vapor. Is Eve fearful? Are they fearful that, well, maybe this isn't working the way we thought. We thought Cain was the one. He goes bad. Here's Abel. He's faithful, but he's named vapor. So now we have two lines. The serpent knows this. He got Cain on his side. He can't get Abel on his side. Abel proves faithful. We are told that Abel's sacrifice is received. Hebrews 11 tells us the reason is that he offered it in faith. We're going to talk a bit more later about what those reasons are. But regardless, he is faithful. Now, perhaps they wonder, is Abel the one? Is he the line of promise? Is he the one who will defeat the serpent? Is he the one who will crush the serpent's head? Perhaps the serpent wonders this. Perhaps the serpent is afraid. None of this we know for sure. But Genesis 3.15 invites us to see this being the drama happening behind the scenes. And so when Cain kills Abel, what has happened? But that the serpent has attacked the line of the woman. The serpent has attacked the line of promise because he knows that is the line that Genesis 3.15 said would be the line from which the one would come who would crush his head. And so we see here what appears to be the beginning of Satan trying to win, the serpent trying to win. But then we are told at the end of chapter 4, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And now another word of faith from Eve. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Now were you wondering if we were speculating too much about this being the story? Here Eve makes it clear. Another offspring echoing the words of Genesis 3. Another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. Eve celebrates by faith that the line of promise continues. And now the rest of chapter 5 is that line leading all the way to Noah, whose name means rest. Brothers and sisters, here we have the story of the whole Bible. Here we have the way to interpret the rest of the scriptures as being that conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, as being the promise that though the serpent does all he can, though the serpent inflicts suffering upon the offspring of the woman, his heel is bruised, though the serpent does all he can from stopping it, that nothing can stop God's promise of that line continuing. The gift of Seth is the announcement that no matter how much the serpent attacks, God will do what he has promised. All of that being the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the one to bring that rest, who would be the one to finally defeat evil. And that faithfulness through this chapter is the faithfulness that would be fulfilled in Christ. Cain and Abel is nothing less than the announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, part of that one story of Scripture. It is a covenant word for you as his gathered church. Here, we celebrate together the unity of Scripture, the beauty of God's Word as one story woven together where there is always more and more depth to be explored. Here, we celebrate the faithfulness of God. 
You say, what is the point to reading a story? You know, I thought Cain and Abel was, don't kill your brother. You're your brother's keeper, right? Moral lesson. We teach our children it so we can tell them, look, you should love your brother. Don't be like Cain. Be good like Abel. But there is no gospel in that. And you see, what is the payoff of reading the story in this way? As flowing from Genesis 3, the payoff is now, who is it all about? It's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's all about not what you do or don't do, or you being naughty or not being naughty. It's about what God in His faithfulness is doing for you in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is essential that we always hear God's Word at every point as always, first of all, speaking to us in that way. It is good news about who God is and what God is doing. Now, many of you know that that is something we have often neglected. That there are uh, many um, traditions in the Christian church that need what we in the Reformed tradition have to offer in the way of emphasizing that way of reading Scripture. But some of you also know there are others who want to do everything we just did and then stop there. And say, all right, so then all we do is we show how it points to Christ and then let's go home. But you see, it is a covenant word. It is a word of relationship. And so as it points to Christ, it's calling you to faith in Christ. It's speaking to you. It's not simply announcing objective truths, but it is God's word speaking to you, to your heart. And one of the things God is doing for you in that covenant relationship through this text, announcing who he is and what he is doing, is he is warning you. And that's the second thing we must see this morning. That in this account, now in that context, he warns us. There are many who worry that we have to pick. That we have to pick if either God's word is comforting, it's announcing promises, or God's word is beating us up and warning us and telling us what to do. But you see, we don't have to pick. Because in the covenant relationship, one of the things God gives us is life. Good life. Life as it's meant to be. And one of the ways in that covenant relationship that God directs us to that good life is through his warnings. His warnings are gracious. And so we're going to spend a few minutes now hearing this text as a warning. But as you hear this warning, hear it from your covenant God. As you hear this warning, hear it coming to you in the hand of our Lord Jesus Christ who loves you and cares about you and gives you this warning for your good. We don't have to pick. The warnings of the covenant serve God's grace. Well, how does the story warn us? Well, we need to get back into the details. Say, whoa, we just did a really high-level overview of what happened, all this stuff about the offspring of the woman and the serpent and all of these things. What about the details? Well, what's one of the fun questions if we're asking about details? Why was Cain, or Abel's offering, verse 2, language of verse 2, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why? Why the regard for Abel's offering? Well, there's lots of speculations. We are told that, verse 2, Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. Some have said maybe keeping sheep was better or something, but Working the ground is exactly what God told Adam and Eve to do, and Cain's the one doing that. That can't be the issue. Others have said, well, maybe it's because Abel offered a blood sacrifice. He sacrifices an animal, the firstborn of his flock, and Cain offers grain. And maybe it's an emphasis on blood sacrifice. 
Now that one is possible, but we know from later on in the law that God also accepts grain offerings. At every point in the law, there's always a category of offering the first fruits from your crops that is part of the offering, and that is always accepted. So there may be a hint here of the necessity of blood sacrifice. Don't, don't ignore that possibility, but I'm not sure it's the main thing. The closest we come to a clue is the language of the emphasis of the text that we are told Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Very simply stated, it's just an offering. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So many have said, and I think this is the closest to getting to it, though again, we don't know for sure, that the issue is that Abel brought the best. He brought the first. That is not said of Cain. Now, the problem with that interpretation, the weakness, is that it doesn't say Cain didn't do that either. So it's hard to say for sure, though I think that is the most likely explanation. Hebrews 11 tells us what the main point is. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abel offered the sacrifice he offered. So whatever reason we think is the outward expression for the the sacrifice being lesser, the issue is his faith, his heart. And here is the first warning of the text. Where does sin begin? Where does darkness begin? It begins in the orientation of the heart. And at the very beginning, what we are being told is that Abel had an orientation toward the Lord and Cain was having an orientation away from, rebelling from. And it is for that reason that the Lord then speaks to Cain. It is striking, isn't it, that at this point, Cain still has a chance. Nothing horrible has happened yet. And the Lord, in his grace, warns him. We are told that Cain was very angry and his face fell. He's envious of his brother. By the way, a theme that's going to be echoed later in Genesis. Brothers being envious of each other. Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. He's envious of his brother. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, don't hear that as you have to earn something. This is now speaking of, again, faith. In Scripture, it's always about faith and the life that flows from faith. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So notice the glimmer of, of, well, it's more than a glimmer, of the Lord being good to Cain here. He's warning him of the path he is on. But what I want us to hear as a way of warning this morning is the way God says this. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. This is a very strange phrase. Many, many things written about it. There is a word in another language, not Hebrew actually, in the ancient Near East that many scholars have pointed out that this word echoes. And it was a word used for a demon at the door, threatening the home, at the threshold. And what Jesus, or what Jesus, what the Lord says here seems to echo that language of the demon crouching at the door. Now, whether you buy that specific connection or not, there is a numinous, a haunting quality to what is said here. Sin being spoken of as, as a force, a power, something that is from the outside threatening, and God is warning Cain of that threat from the outside. You ought to feel that way as you read the passage. 
God in his grace is warning Cain, there is a hauntedness to the world that is out to get you, and you need to not give yourself over to it. Then, another way the text warns us is continuing on how everything then happens. The way sin goes downhill quickly. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, you got to pause there for a moment. The suggestion is Cain's talking nice to his brother. Abel goes with him in the field. Maybe Cain even said, hey, come out to the field with me. There's a deception of some kind happening that Cain could kill his brother. It's premeditated. Then the Lord... um, Continuing verse 8, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Notice the refrain, his brother, his brother. There's an emphasis on the closeness of the relationship. It's premeditated, and Cain nevertheless goes through with it, killing him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here's one of the most, I think, misused phrases here. The Lord does not say, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Cain is actually making fun. Keeper is the language for being a shepherd. Abel is the shepherd. As one writer says, it's like Cain is saying, am I the shepherd's shepherd? That's ridiculous. That's not my job. And it's actually not his job. Cain is being dismissive. He's, he's making fun. But he's, he's using this exaggeration to be dismissive. And that is the horror of what's going on. He's speaking flippantly, dismissively, knowing his brother is dead. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And then he proclaims the curse upon Cain. Cain says it is too much. The Lord places a mark upon Cain that he would be protected. Then we read the account of Cain's offspring. They build cities. They do all these cultural works. But all of it leads to the rebellion of Lamech, taking pride in his abuse of women, in his violence, in the warfare he's embracing. And all of that pride of the darkness is viewed as being presented as the result of where sin led to. And then there is the refrain through chapter 5. And he died, and he died, and he died. This is the horror of sin. A congregation of Christ, we must hear all of that as warning. That sin is a matter of our internal heart orientation. It is also a matter of external evil, of the reality of evil darkness in the world that is out to get us. And we must be alert to that reality There is this language of once you give yourself over a little bit, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you not do well, that is, once you give yourself over to that direction, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is portrayed as something that will not stay put. Sin is portrayed as something that inevitably wants to grow, that wants to take over. And here stands the covenant warning for God's covenant people. Do not flirt with that stuff. That sin that is crouching at the door, do not wink at it. When you give it an inch, it wants to grow. It wants to take over. We desperately need the warning of what James would say in his letter, that sin, that desire, contrary to God's word, that it gives birth, it grows, it flourishes, it wants to take over, and eventually it leads to death. It leads to what is portrayed here. Indeed, perhaps this is the most important way this is a warning for us. What you have on display in this text is a horrifying picture of what sin leads to. 
of what all sin leads to, of what our sin would lead to, of what your sin would lead to. This text invites us to look at every, every glimmer of sin, every temptation to flirt with whatever it may be, and to look at it in terms of what it would lead to if it got to take over. Every lustful glance would lead to destructive consuming of the other. Every giving over to anger, to rage, would lead to the death, to the destruction of the other. Every given giving over to the reckless worship of the pleasures of this life would lead to self-destruction. And part of the wisdom of how we fight against sin is to look at the small thing we are tempted by and to be warned by the horror, the severity of just what it would lead to if it were left to its own devices. And I want to point you to, I want to encourage you with the wisdom of that. Sometimes, the sins in our life that we find ourselves going back to, falling into time and again, the ones that we find most difficult to root out, it's because we haven't yet let ourselves be honest or wise about just where it would lead to. We haven't let ourselves be honest or wise about just horrible the DNA of that seed of sin is and what it would go to if it were left to its own devices. The warning to Cain echoes through the ages. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Say, all right. We hear the warning. We've got it. You can stop making that point over and over. Okay. Now what? There's a temptation, right? Just end there. There's lots of application. We all got our toes stepped on. Yeah, that sermon spoke to us. Let's all go home now. Where should we go in response to warnings? Did you all hear an exhortation to now go try harder? Go be better. Is that what you hear? Sometimes that's what we hear. If that warning gets you in a particular way, where do you go? To God's promises. Look to Christ. Look to the promises of God in Christ. Look away from yourself to the good news that is announced to you. That when your sin frightens you, when it haunts you, when it's destructive, look away from yourself to the promise of God in Christ. The third and final thing this morning. Because here, what ought, here is what ought to thrill us at the end of Genesis chapter 4. Why is Cain still alive? What a weird story. Cain just did this horrible thing, killing his brother. God, the God of justice, of righteousness, comes and he, de- he declares a judgment on Cain that already is not Cain dying. Cain's going to wander. Okay, Cain, I mean, good grief, at least, you know, thank God that you're not being executed at this point. And he says, no, no, I can't handle it, it's too much for me. And even in that, Cain is complaining about his punishment. And God gives him a mark to protect him. God continues to protect him. Now, there is so much, so much you could get into and what this means, what's going on in the text. Here's the heart of it. God is showing mercy to Cain. God is showing mercy to Cain, and in this we have the shape of the sun. 
the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. In this we have the shape of the one who would be the reason that God could show this mercy to Cain. I want to pause here for a moment. Where are we going? Well, we read Hebrews chapter 12, and it ended with the announcement of the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But hold on, though. I want us to hear that in the context of this story. I don't want to switch to the New Testament. I want us to hear this account, Genesis chapter 4, proclaiming Christ to us. Remember that hauntedness of sin crouching at the door. And then hear what God says to Cain in verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. One writer points out, and I think he's exactly right, there is an eeriness to how this is said. He doesn't just say, his blood cries out to me, the voice of his blood. There's a personifying of the blood that is dark, eerie, strange. I had a section of my notes at one point that said creepy things in this text. This is one of them, as is the sin crouching at the door. That we live in a world where there is blood crying out, the voice of it. Horrible things that humans do to each other. This isn't just about our individual sin. This is about the darkness of the world and the reality of what our sin and the curse has unleashed. That Cain and Abel portrays us, announces to us, living in a world that is dark and haunted and fearful and there is demonic evil and there is spiritual darkness and there is the own things that we do to each other pouring out of our envy, our anger, our lust, all the destructiveness of what we do. That is the world we are living in. And it is in the midst of that world that blood cries out and it is in answer to that world it is speaking into that reality described in this text that hebrews 12 says christ's blood speaks a better word than that it takes on all of that it resolves all of that it conquers and defeats all of that and so we ask this morning in the light of genesis 4 how does jesus blood speak a better word The blood of Abel is the blood of the innocent victim. Well, the soil of this planet is, we could say, literally, saturated with the blood of innocent victims, of injustice. And we are trapped. Who could fix it? Who could set it right? It is by the blood of Christ alone that true justice and righteousness, that all that is broken can be fixed and set right. That Christ's blood speaks the better word because it answers that horror. The reality of innocent suffering. As we sang in Psalm 146, that God is the one who cares for, ultimately headed toward the new creation. All those who are weakest in culture and society. He answers that blood with the blood of his son. More than that, Christ's blood speaks a better word because it is the blood that can break the cycle of vengeance. You hear the cycle of vengeance emerging in here. That Lamech and his violence and his vengeance is 77-fold. That all, all of our human ways of bringing justice just perpetuate cycles. Any human way we can come up with to try to set something right, however, in an imperfect way, it's how things need to be, 
governments, military, these, these are all good things God has given in his providence on this side of the new creation. None of them, though, can break the cycle. And so Christ says to us, you will always have, the scriptures tell to us very clearly, there will always be wars and rumors of wars. We cannot break that cycle of vengeance, of violence. And sometimes, all the time, that is horrifying. The things that we do to each other, the ways in which a society can fall apart, the ways in which a community can fall apart, the horrible things that humans do. And there are times where it it can be overwhelming and fearful and frightening and dark. Christ's blood speaks a better word. He alone can break that cycle. He alone can intervene. And so it is as though, again, as, as another writer said beautifully, when God looks at the blood of Abel, And then he's going to act in response, act upon Cain. It's as though he sees the blood of Christ and that breaks the cycle. That that breaks the pattern. And so now he can set into motion a different cycle. Looking forward to the new creation to come, God alone can set this right. And his blood speaks a better word. Because we know that all of that horrible stuff we're talking about out there is the end result, the ultimate expression of sin that lurks within each of us. Every angry word to a loved one participates in all of that sin. And so here is where Christ's blood speaks a better word. It washes away that sin. It announces to you that perhaps this morning your greatest fear, your greatest darkness is not the reality of all that darkness out there. It's not the reality of the, the, the demonic hauntedness crouching at the door. It's that your own heart did that thing. And that is fearful. Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because it announces to you that you are forgiven that God does not see that sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. It announces to you that your shame is covered. It is not what defines you. It is not what makes you who you are. It is that word that Christ's blood speaks in response to the crying out of Abel's blood. And that is God's word to you. All expressed, pronounced from this text. It was an animal sacrifice, after all, that was offered earlier, pointing to what Christ would do, making all of this grace possible. And so, brothers and sisters, by all means, view it as this great drama, the offspring of the woman, hear it as a warning, and in response to that warning, look to the promises of God in faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.